In last week, we are taking a short break from our Ezekiel series to consider the first two chapters of Luke's Gospel account for the remainder of the year. And our passage this morning begins at verse 26 in Luke chapter 1. We'll read down to verse 38 this morning. Luke tells us at the beginning that he's given us a very carefully researched and orderly account that was written for the benefit of one particular individual named Theophilus, whose name means the beloved of God. Uh, Let's keep in mind the purpose of this book, which we'll be studying over the next few weeks, that the same purpose indeed extends to all the Theophiluses that are here in this room today, that it is so that likewise we also, who are the beloved of God in Christ Jesus, in taking up this writing, may have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught in the gospel. And to that end, let's uh, seek the Lord's help and blessing upon the preaching of this portion of God's word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we sit under the preaching of it. Let's pray together. Great God and Heavenly Father, we come as needy and hungry children that through the ministry of your word and the very power of your spirit working through it, you would be enlightening our minds and the eyes of our hearts in the knowledge of Christ and satisfy our longing souls with the riches of Jesus Christ. That Christ would be the very balm of Gilead and healing for the sin-sick souls and by the power of the gospel, our lives would be transformed inwardly through the renewal of the mind into the likeness of his glory Uh, to a greater degree. Fill us with all joy and peace and hope, and we pray that Christ would dwell in us by faith and his words would dwell richly in our hearts today. So give us this blessing, we pray. Uh, We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Hear the word of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. 
And Mary said, Behold, I'm your, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Thus far this reading in God's holy word. Luke opens the gospel story by placing two birth narratives side by side. Two cousins, the barren old woman Elizabeth and the virgin, a girl probably still in her late teens by the name of Mary, each bearing a son six months apart in a most improbable fashion that defies human understanding. The births of John the Baptist and Jesus intricately linked together, are foretold and announced by the same angel, the angel Gabriel, who now comes to this little town in Galilee called Nazareth. This is a familiar theme that runs through the scriptures. A woman whose ability to bear children is in doubt for one reason or another, from Sarah to Rebecca, Isaac's wife, to Rachel, Jacob's wife, to Hannah, all the way down to Elizabeth and Mary, being enabled to give birth to a son through divine promise and intervention. And that theme is being brought to its climax here in the coming of the Savior, who is the promised seed of the woman. This is a rather familiar passage to most of us, and a scene that is often sentimentalized and even commercialized Yet herein, we see the power of God unto salvation, that is the gospel. We see the eternal God at work in his mercy and grace, breaking into history to provide for that which men cannot do for themselves. God bringing salvation for sinners according to his own promises. And this marvelous gospel story is told through the eyes and experience of Mary. Mary was the likely source for Luke's account here in the opening chapter. Only she herself, as the first-hand participant in this drama, could have supplied the many details refined in the passage. And Mary is telling the story of an unforgettable encounter with the angel Gabriel. Now, angels appear rather infrequently in the scriptures. Angels pop up only at certain critical junctures and pivotal points when there is a significant advancement, a development in redemptive history. We see angels, for example, at the giving of the law on Mount Sinai in the days of Moses, and we see angels at major moments through the life and ministry of Jesus. At his birth, angels appear out in the field in Bethlehem praising God, and we see them attending Jesus at the temptation in the wilderness and strengthening Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, with the angels heralding the resurrection at the empty tomb on the first day of the week. And we see, we will see myriads of angels when Jesus returns in great power and glory. And the angel's appearance here marks that indeed the fullness of time has come in God's economy. God is sending forth his son into the world. This choice angel, Gabriel, is being dispatched from heaven to the Galilean town of Nazareth in order to announce the news to this lowly woman, Mary. As one commentator succinctly puts it, Mary is a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. They rightly questioned 
Can anything good come out of Nazareth? A small, highly insignificant town lying on the outskirt of the Promised Land, far away from Jerusalem. They called Nazareth the Galilee of the nations, that whole area, as Isaiah called it in Isaiah chapter 9. This is a land brought into contempt and darkness, mixture with and contact with Gentiles. And just the way God works in salvation, God unexpectedly choosing what is weak in the world to shame the strong, God choosing what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, in order to bring to nothing things that are. And here, it is here, unbeknownst to the eyes of the world, something significant is taking place. An angel appears, this heavenly creature who stands and dwells in the presence of God, these angels, as the writer to the Hebrews says, uh, who are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, an angel appears here in the interest of salvation. Well, that means Gabriel's appearance here and his words to Mary as recorded here are given also for your sake, brothers and sisters. They're given here to serve you. That through this record in Luke, you may also grow in certainty and assurance of things not seen. You may grow in knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that reminder, I want you to see some things with your own eyes in this angelic encounter in our passage this morning. And there are four things I want to point out to you as we seek to divide up the text. I want you to see first the greeting that angel Gabriel brings to Mary. Then secondly, both the announcement and the explanation that Gabriel provides, both the announcement that Gabriel makes and the explanation that he provides. And then thirdly, I want you to see the encouragement that Gabriel supplies. And then finally, I want you to see the response that Mary makes. So angel's greeting, angel's announcement and and explanation, the angel's encouragement, and finally Mary's response. Look first at the angel's greeting, which you read in verse 28, deeply disturbs and troubles Mary. Gabriel appears to Mary and says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And Mary is greatly troubled and perplexed by these words. It's not so much the presence of an angel that troubles her as much, so much as the words and saying of Gabriel that brings her into distress. She kept pondering it. She kept trying to discern what it means, trying to work it out and what kind of greeting this might be that she is hearing from Gabriel. And Gabriel repeats the word again in verse 30, the word favor in order to allay her fear. The Lord has shown favor upon you. It's the exact same word uh, for the word grace, the Greek word charis, maybe the most important salvation word in the entire Bible. And Gabriel says, don't be afraid, for you have found grace with God. Mary is about to become the mother of the long-promised Messiah. And it's not because of anything found in Mary. It's going to be because of all all of grace bestowed upon her. Earlier in in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah and Elizabeth 
were described as righteous and blameless. But none of that is highlighted here for Mary as the angel addresses her. It's just a matter of sheer grace of God that she's a recipient of great grace. Greetings, O favored one or O graced one. The Lord is with you. Now, all kinds of errors and false religions have sprung up around Mary because of the misunderstanding of this announcement. Roman Catholics, for example, following the Latin mistranslation of this angelic greeting, makes Mary an object of veneration. They say, Hail Mary, full of grace. That's what the Latin unfortunately mistranslates its verse, as though Mary is full of grace, as though Mary is the source of grace for sinners, the repository of grace, that repugnant doctrine of immaculate conception that sees Mary to be the sinless, sinless one, the one who did not share in original sin as the mother of the Messiah. But the truth is exactly the opposite. The thing that greatly disturbs and troubles Mary, in fact, is the message of grace. What really disturbs Mary about the content of this great uh, greeting from the angel is that she should be the recipient of grace, that she should find such favor with God for reasons that are entirely outside of her. Mary is inwardly amazed and distressed and troubled by the very thought that she should be shown favor, that she should be treated with unspeakable, undeserving kindness, and this greeting greatly disturbed her. If you think about it, brothers and sisters, that's what grace does and that's what grace should do for you. The great characteristic of anyone who is the recipient of God's blessing in salvation, the salvation of God in Jesus Christ, the great characteristics of those who have been saved by grace is that they are baffled and amazed and even disturbed by the sheer wonder of God's grace. And that's what troubles Mary, not the presence of the angels, but the message of grace brought in this greeting. I cannot work out why is it that God should be so gracious to me. And I simply pause to ask you, does that the gospel ever do that to you? Uh, does the gospel put those words in your lips that even unbelievers sing unknowingly, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. If you can work out in your own mind, in your own intellectual system, what it is in you that has led God to be gracious to you, then you have actually never known the grace of the gospel. Because all of the reasons for God to be gracious to you are not found in you, but in himself. And here Mary is given this unique privilege and high honor by God's grace alone. Mary will bear a child. The child will be the Savior, Jesus, the Son of the Most High. And the angel says, O favored one, it is by grace alone that you will be a human instrument in the coming of the salvation to the world, and you yourself is in need of that salvation as a sinner. So many hold up Mary as some kind of special saint. Even without that idolatry associated with Roman Catholicism, so many believers think that Mary is some kind of special saint, as though she is different than us. But do you really realize that the exact same thing has happened to you in the gospel that has happened to you in the, to Mary. The sheer privilege and blessing you enjoy. That you received in the gospel something more astonishing 
than this angelic greeting to Mary. That you have the apostolic greeting, the gospel salutations that begin every New Testament letter that you have given to you, grace and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, Gabriel's angelic greeting to Mary here is applied to every single believer in Jesus Christ. You are the favored one. The same verb used in Gabriel's greeting, O favored one, is applied to designate every single believer united to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's used to describe your privilege as the graced one. In the opening few verses of Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul describes every spiritual blessing you have been blessed with in Christ, being chosen in Christ in love from eternity past, being predestined for glory, your adoption as sons all to the praise of his glorious grace. And that glorious grace, Paul says, which he has freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. And that's the same word Gabriel uses here. Glorious grace which he freely bestowed upon us or with which he has blessed us or favored us in the beloved. That's the kind of privilege you enjoy uh, if you're in Jesus Christ. You are the favored one. To you have come grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And isn't it true that it's just about the easiest thing for most of us as we go on in the Christian life to kind of slip into the disgracing of God's grace. And that happens when in your soul that grace no longer amazes you or even disturbs you at times. Here Mary is going to be the recipient of great grace and we find that greeting, the message, greatly troubling Mary. Well, what about the announcement then and the explanation that the angel brings to Mary secondly? Look at verse 31. Having seen the angel's greeting, look at the announcement followed by the explanation that Gabriel brings. Verse 31, Gabriel says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and he will be the Savior. Now, when six months before, uh, Gabriel makes a similar birth announcement, he says to Zechariah, John the Baptist will be great before the Lord. But this child, Jesus, will be great, period. In and of himself, without qualification, he will be great, and he will be the Son of the Most High. There's no higher title given in the scriptures for the majesty of God than the Most High. It's a name that points us to the absolutely transcendent inapproachability of God who dwells in glory. And the angel says, Jesus will be the Son of the Most High. He will possess in himself the majestic name and nature of God, and yet he will truly, fully, perfectly be human. Son of God and truly man, conceived in your womb, born of woman, coming into the world, 
and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob. That's the announcement that Gabriel makes. The stupendous gospel announcement that the child will be the promised Messiah king who will reign over God's house, who will reign over the 12 tribes of Israel, reign over all the people of God down through the ages, the church, and he's going to be the ruler and king over the house of Jacob. I wonder if you speak, uh, if you think naturally of the church in terms of the Old Testament imageries, like the children of Israel, the daughters of Zion, or people and descendants of Jacob. That's all a designation scripturally referring to God's people, the church. And Jesus is seen here as the king who will rule over the house of Jacob. It's speaking of the mercy of God shown to those who are frail and twisted and sinful just like Jacob. That's the comfort and strength for you. For example, when you sing Psalm 46, and when you say with the psalmist, the God of Jacob is with us, the comfort that the God is the God of the weak and sinful children like us, the God of the sinful, warm Jacob, as Scripture calls him. And here Jesus will come to rule over his people. He will come to us in his covenant mercy to be the king who sits on the throne to reign over all the house of Jacob, his people. Reigning and redeeming king over the weak, frail, sinful people who will come to save his people from sins. And this salvation will be revealed to the ends of the earth. The angel says, of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. The kingdom that Jesus comes to rule over, which is not of this world, will nonetheless spread to the ends of the earth. And as we sang in Psalm 147 at the beginning of the worship service, he will bring and gather all the exiles home into his heavenly kingdom. He's the divine savior. He will be the Davidic king. In this child, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the promise of Second Samuel 7 and the vision of Daniel chapter 7 will be combined together. The everlasting throne and the everlasting kingdom promised to the son of David and universal obedience of all peoples and nations to be brought to the Son of Man figure seen in Daniel's vision will all be combined in the coming of this child. And that's the announcement. There's a note of sovereignty there, is it there not? Angel simply says this is going to be. It's not open to negotiation. It'll happen. You'll bear a son. His name will be Jesus. He will be the Son of the Most High. He will be given the throne. He will be given the everlasting kingdom. He will rule and reign. It's a sovereign announcement. And there's also a note of majesty. His kingdom is going to be everlasting. He will reign. The Son of the Most High will be on the throne. And there's also a great deal of mystery that absolutely puzzled Mary. What Gabriel just said to Mary is just a summary of the Old Testament. And Mary, hearing that announcement, doesn't have any problem, per se, believing the right message brought to her. But her question 
back to Gabriel expressed in verse 34 is how can it be? How could it be possible for me? Since I have not known a man, I'm a virgin. It doesn't seem to compute. It's the right biblical message. But are you sure it's the right address? It's not a sign of unbelief. She's not asking like Zechariah did back in chapter 1 earlier, how can I know? But she's asking, how can it be for me? Since I'm unqualified, a virgin, how can this possibly happen to me? That's That's a mark, actually, of what it means to be highly favored, if you think about it, to be bestowed with grace, to have that sense that Mary displays in this verse, to have the sense that, Gabriel, you've got the right message, but it really came to the wrong address. I believe the gospel is true, but how could it be possibly for me? The gospel is absolutely confounding and scandalous at times. How can it save a wretch like me, a miserable sinner like me? How will this be? How can the gospel promises be fulfilled towards me? How can God forgive my sins? This is faith-seeking understanding. And the angel, having made the announcement, provides the explanation. Verse 35, and he essentially has one answer. And the answer is that it's not going to be through anything of the flesh. It's going to be through the power of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. This will be a supernatural event. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you, and therefore, the child to be born will be holy, the Son of God. By the working of the Spirit, virgin conception by the Spirit from on high will ensure that the child to be born will be sinless, born without sin, one without our Adamic sinful nature, innocent, unstrained, separated from sinners, and he will come, not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. In other words, the solution, the remedy for your sin must be entirely divine and must be entirely from outside of this world and must be entirely from outside of the human race, fallen human race. And it will be by the power of the Spirit, the same power of God seen in the creation of the world in Genesis chapter 1, when the Spirit hovered over and overshadowed the darkness and God spoke, let there be, and it came to be, that same power will be at work, and that same power will overshadow you in the darkness of your womb, and that same power will bring the light of the world to shine life and immortality into the sinful world. That's how the new creation will begin. By the power of the Holy Spirit, salvation will come. That's how you will conceive, supernaturally, by the power of God, through the Spirit's work. There's something very wonderful and marvelous about this explanation, things that defy our comprehension. How can God become man? How can the eternal God become flesh? How can the Lord of glory who created the ends of the earth 
become a zygote, a human embryo in the womb. There's something mysterious about the doctrine of the incarnation. There's something wonderful and marvelous about every conception and birth. How God wonderfully and fearfully knits together a human being in the mother's womb. Something very mysterious about that whenever God does that. Ecclesiastes chapter 11 verse 5 reminds us, as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Childbirth is fascinating then infinitely more wondrous is the truth of the incarnation. The unfathomable condescension of the Son of God, though he was in the form of God, he empties himself, empties himself of divine glory by taking on the form of human flesh, becoming, being born in the likeness of man, in order to humble himself, to die upon the cross, it's inscrutable. And the angel says, you will be with a child by the power of the Holy Spirit. The same principle applies to all aspects of salvation. In order for you to be saved, it must all be by the power of the Spirit. Mary asked, how will this be? Ezekiel is asked, can these bones live? Jeremiah asks, can a leopard change its spots and Ethiopian change the skin? Paul asks, how are the dead raised in the twinkling of an eye? What kind of body? Can your sins forgiven? The same Holy Spirit must be at work in salvation, and he is at work. He's a spirit who gives new birth. By the same power, he changes a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. He opens blind eyes. He sanctifies his people in the knowledge of Christ, transforming you. The same Holy Spirit is doing that, working in your life, producing Christ's likeness, and he will raise your body one day into the likeness of his glorious body. And if Christ is in you and you are in Christ, it's because the very same thing that Mary experienced in a different way happened. The same working of the Holy Spirit overshadowing you, as it were. The Spirit was poured out into your heart. That's how every spiritual birth is given, how you're brought into the kingdom of God. The same Holy Spirit who knitted together the Lord Jesus in Mary's womb is the same Holy Spirit that formed Jesus Christ within you. It's all going to be by the power of God. And that's the explanation given for this mysterious uh, doctrine. That's the explanation given for the truth of salvation. Remember when a woman in the crowd during Jesus' ministry in Luke chapter 11 cried out, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Remember what Jesus replied. Jesus says, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. If you think Mary is some special blessed person, 
Jesus corrects that perspective and says, blessed rather are those who hear the word and keep it. The gospel simply sets before you what God has done supernaturally. God has done it. And our response simply is to believe the good news. That's the angelic announcement and explanation. But much more briefly, thirdly and fourthly, let's move on to the last two points. And I want you to see thirdly, the encouragement that the angel supplies for Mary to believe. Mary has been given this news in verse 36 and verse 37. The encouragement comes in two forms. Verse 36, angel says, you're not the only one with a child uh, because your barren relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son. Well, that's the encouragement. What an encouragement it must have been to Mary about to face what he's about, she's about to go through. Isn't that how God encourages you also? God brings others around you. When you're called to walk in the pathway of faith, obedience, and Christian duty, and even trials, what encouragement Elizabeth's example must have been to Mary, and it's what God also gives you in your Christian living. You're never alone in Jesus Christ. Encouragement comes to your faith in the fellowship of the saints through living examples. The Apostle Peter says in his first letter, calling the church to stand firm in the faith, resisting the evil one, he says, stand firm, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhoods throughout the world. Well, there's your encouragement. You're not the only one in this. Whatever situation and experience you face as a believer, you need to always know that you're not the only one. You are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses with Jesus himself, your elder brother, being able to sympathize with you. And because this is the case, Hebrews chapter 10 exhorts you, do not neglect to meet together, but rather encouraging one another and stirring up one another, Hebrews chapter 10. So that's the one encouragement Gabriel brings. But then secondly, verse 37, there is also a theological encouragement that Gabriel brings from the scriptures. Gabriel says, nothing will be impossible with God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. The angel is actually just echoing what was said 1,500 years before and repeated many times since in the scriptures. He's repeating essentially what the Lord said to Sarah, Abram's wife, when he came to Sarah and promised her son, and the Lord said to Sarah in her incredulity, Genesis 18:14, "Is anything too hard for the Lord? It's anything too wonderful. Nothing is impossible with God." And here the same reminder is brought to Mary by the angel, by way of her encouragement. The very same thing is true for you as well. You need to set your heart on this truth of God's power when you're disillusioned and distressed and distraught and frail, when your faith is wavering, set your hearts on the doctrine of who God is that you read in the scriptures. Uh, J.C. Ryle says, a hearty reception of this great principle is of great importance to our own inward peace. Be still that, know that you are a God. 
scripture has been given to you for your encouragement. And the scripture keeps proclaiming to you the one who is your help. The creator of the end of the earth, the one who made heaven and earth is your helper, is your keeper, and nothing is impossible with him. And he can do far more abundantly than you can ask or think. He can restore all the years the locusts have eaten in your life. He can work out good, even out of impossible situations seemingly from a human perspective. He can forgive all your sins. All your great sins can be forgiven. It is possible also for your marriage to be restored, for your child's rebellious heart to be changed. He can raise dead sinners to life and transform them. He can spread a table in the wilderness. He can provide for you. Here the angel brings encouragement from the scriptures, leading her to a knowledge of God, how God stoops down to help our heart and help our unbelief through his, his word. Isn't that just how the Lord deals with you? The Lord sends helps and encouragements through the saints, through his word, through the knowledge of who he is. And then fourthly and finally, I want you to see marriage response at the end. After all that announcement and encouragement, he, she responds finally in verse 38 and says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. A simple, beautiful expression of faith. It's a response of humble, quiet submission to the Lord. Something that I pray should be found in each one of us. Marriage yielding herself wholeheartedly to the Lord and to his his purposes and says to him, may it be so, according to your word and your will, for I am your servant. She's willing to receive and to live for Jesus Christ, however costly it would be to to say yes to the Lord. Prepare to go anywhere, do anything, be anything for the Lord, a humble, trusting, submissive, obedient servant. Now don't think for a second that this was automatic or easy for Mary. Vastly costly for Mary the costliness of it, embracing the Lord's will for her. Think of it. There's a lifelong damage to her reputation, the stigma of adultery and fornication due to premarital conception. And at the moment when the angel laid out God's will for her, she was essentially jeopardizing all her earthly security As a betrothed woman in the first century, she was risking losing even Joseph. No guarantee was given here. At least she didn't know at the time that Joseph would take her back with a child conceived out of wedlock. What a loss that would have been for a vulnerable woman in the first century. In fact, we know that Joseph initially quietly wanted to divorce her. And then the physical pain of childbirth and then the immigration to Egypt for a season fleeing Herod's persecution, the family had to move. And as later, Simeon will prophesy the sword, will one day pierce her soul as a mother. 
watching her son die and crucified. Here, Mary is consenting to a lifetime of suffering for the glory of God as a humble, meek, glad servant in submission to the Lord. What makes you lay down your life daily, willingly, gladly spent for Jesus Christ as his servant? Or are you willing to do that? What makes one a servant of the Lord? It's when you begin to realize that he loved me and gave himself up for me, so that in view of the mercy of God, without qualification, without reservation, without hesitation, I lay down my life to be his servant. And at the end of the day, that's the only way you live. And when you live like that, the Lord will burden you with blessings. Do you know what it means to be blessed with the burdens that he calls you to bear at the same time, to be burdened by the blessings that he brings you in his overwhelming grace? Just stop and work that out yourself. Burdened with the blessings, but blessed with the burdens as you take up your duties. And as you do so, his grace will be sufficient for you. Here, Mary is not a model of how we qualify for God's grace, but a model of how God's grace qualifies us to serve him for his glory. By God's grace, Mary wholeheartedly became a servant of the Lord, Jesus. And he said, you this morning, don't make the mistake ever of thinking that you lived a Christian life on flowery beds of ease, untouched and unbothered by grace. Let your response to the Lord rather be one of unreserved service. Let it be to me, according to your word, whatever the cost, have all of me. And he's a gracious master who will abundantly repay all these other things that you fear you would lose when you come to Jesus and yield yourself to him like that. How do you know that? Because you are surrounded by examples, aren't you? Both living and dead, both in the church and in the scriptures, of those who have been made rich through his poverty because they have believed on and trusted in and obeyed wholeheartedly the Lord Jesus. Oh, that's the message. Let it be to me. According to your word, Lord, by your grace, I am your servant. Well, let's pray together.